Thank you guys so much for praying with me. The issue of same-sex attraction, homosexual activity, uh, is going to be the, uh, the main subject to hear this morning. And uh, it, it affects us all. It, if it hasn't yet, it will affect us all. Uh, many of us, uh, maybe, maybe all of us, know someone we love, maybe we ourselves, who deal with same-sex attraction or something analogous to it associated with the LGBTQ, etc. definitions. Um, and if that's not true for you, if, if neither you nor someone in your orbit is affected by this in a way that's meaningful for you, um, well, the, the, the weight of the culture, the governmental and educational and economic and media systems in this country uh, are quickly and massively shifting. Uh, for, 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 it's been happening for several decades now, but it's increasing speed uh, in a way that is embracing uh, sexual ethics that are diametrically opposed in ways they never have been to what have been norms for the West and Judeo-Christian cultures, uh, Judeo-Christian informed cultures for thousands of years. Nations and cultures in the West, if not the world, are, are really being kind of swamped with a tsunami, so to speak, of just new norm, new ethic of sexuality. So we're, we're all affected and we're all going to be affected in our families, in our jobs, where we shop, what we watch, what we say, what we hear, what we're being asked to do, what we're being not asked to do. It is a brave new world for us uh, believers of questions and feelings and struggles and confusions and fears concerning this new sexual world. Um, and, and for that reason, and for a couple others, but, but it's also because Paul, in our journey through Romans, he's bringing this issue right to the forefront for us as he describes the, the, the cure and the disease, right? That we talked about last week, that this whole goal in Romans 1 is really to present to us briefly the cure, because most of the book's going to be about the cure, but then really gets early on into the disease of unrighteousness, of mankind suppressing the truth about God and God's response and judgment in this chapter of this book. And, and right in front of us, we get to this issue of, of same-sex attraction, homosexual activity. So I wanted to spend time on this issue because it's right in front of us now. And, uh, but let me say at the outset, uh, I'm really sensitive about this, and I also fear not being sensitive enough um, I don't want to apologize for God's word. Word. I want to preach it with clarity. Um, I also want to be humble and gracious and loving because God is humble and gracious and loving. So if I say something today that offends you, I would love it if you would just come and talk to me about it um, and just tell me, hey, you, you told me to tell you. Well, I'm telling you. If I say something that um, really confuses you, I'd, I'd love you to talk to me about it. Uh, if I say something that hurts, just please Come in and talk to me. I want to learn. Um, I, I might disagree with you, but I might agree with you. And in whatever I do, I want to learn from you and I want to be kind to you about that. So I, I think as I walk through this issue today, I, I recognize that I think that we're going to spend some time over a couple of messages on this. I'm not going to do a mini series on this at this point. That would be a great thing. Um, I don't feel equipped at this point uh, or sense God would have me do that. But I'm, I'm going to try to explain over a couple of messages what God's word says about this issue. 
of same-sex attraction, homosexual activity, uh, and will bleed into some of the other um, related issues of transgenderism. I, I won't spend a ton of time there because of my, my own lack of understanding of it. I'm still trying to gain speed on it. And, and, but in doing it, I'm gonna make three main appeals over the couple of messages. Three main appeals. I want us to be clear about what God says about this. I wanna help you equip, be equipped to be clear about it and to not be um, on fundamental levels to, be, to understand what God, believe, what God says about this, what his heart is concerning the issue of homosexual activity. I want us to be compassionate. So clear, I want us to be compassionate. I want to equip you to think about this in ways that are not proud, that are not arrogant, that are not self-righteous, that are not judgmental, but that are compassionate and caring about, some, about an issue that's very difficult for the people who deal with it. It's almost always difficult and uh, is accompanied by suffering. And I want us to be courageous. I want us to be courageous. I want us to have hope. Um, I want us to be able to see what's happening in the culture and understand it. I want us to have hope in the Lord that we can stand where he's called us to stand, walk how he's wanted us to, to walk and be means of grace and kindness, which is gonna require a certain kind of courage to come alongside with compassion um, while not affirming and agreeing with everything that the world is calling us to affirm and agree. So, but today we're gonna focus on that first part of, of clarity. I want us to be clear. We're gonna try to get a sense of just the basics of what God says about this, particularly in Romans, where we're gonna focus on chapters one, verses 24 through 27. So today, clarity, Lord willing, may God help us. That's my goal, is to provide some basic clarity. So we find ourselves in Romans 1, 24 through 27. And we can put those up right here. Um, just one slide forward, Pam. They should be there, okay? But we don't have to read those yet. I want us to, before we get there, I want us to think about where we are in this book, okay? We're in the disease. What's wrong with humanity? What's gone wrong? <clears throat> Early in the chapter, we went through our summary last week. Early in the chapter, Paul begins by announcing a cure, Right? I used that metaphor last week, the cure and the disease. He briefly mentions the cure for the disease of mankind. And that cure is God's offer, which we see in verses 16 and 17, of a clean record in his courtroom that we don't deserve, that we don't earn through faith in Jesus Christ. It is called the righteousness from God that he gives to us through faith in Jesus Christ. This is the cure for our disease. And then Paul goes on to explain, starting in verse 18, why we need this cure. Our unrighteousness and the engendering of God's wrath against our unrighteousness. <clears throat> Mankind, made in God's image, Paul tells us, has as a race, as a community of people, has turned from God. Paul is talking about the universal condition of mankind from the creation onwards. And he says, we have, apart from God's grace, we have turned from God. We have suppressed the truth about God as the creator of all things, the source of all things, even though he's made it plain to us through what he has made. And we have not lived lives of honor and thanksgiving owed to him. And we have turned instead to the creation worshiping what was made instead of the maker. This event happened and happens, but it happened very early in our, 
experience as a race. And Paul is, is going all the way back to the creation, really, in this passage. And he's saying, we got broke from the garden onward. We got broken. Things went wrong. Things went south early in our communal relationship with God. One of the things that's challenging about a book like Romans is that humans are dealt with both as individuals, your life, but also as like one universal organism, like all people, as if they're one life. Like Paul looks at the human race often in Romans as, <clears throat> as one thing, as one being, that we're all connected. We're all connected to Adam. We all flow from him. What happened to him happens to us. What he did, we did in him and with him. And so it makes it really tricky because Paul, who's brilliant and a genius and says stuff that's really hard to understand, which even the Bible says that. Did you, you guys have probably heard that. Maybe you haven't. Do you know that Peter, in one of his letters, he, he tells us that Paul says hard, like things that are hard to understand. I think that's so helpful. <laughs> and and I, I agree with Peter. <laughs> he does. He says things that are hard to understand. <clears throat> But God wants us to work to understand them. He wants us to study. But that's one of the issues that, that we are made both as individuals, but we're also con conceived of by God as, as a corporate entity and of humanity. So God says that we got broke a long time ago when we turned from God and we turned to creation. We, we did not want God to be our God and we turned to what he had made as our source, as our life. And this cosmic injustice against God incited God's anger and incites his, his righteous, holy anger at injustice and then his judgment. And then for the first time in the chapter, in verse 24, God responds to man's rejection of God. <clears throat> and in verse 24, we're starting to see for the first time, if you go back to Romans and the chain of events that happens in verse 24, God starts to respond. And he says that he, well, Paul says that God gives us up. He gives us over to our own hearts. He puts it this way in verse 24. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. God's judgment, as we saw last week and as we journeyed in Romans uh, this summer, is to give us over. His judgment in righteousness is to hand us over to our own evil desires. Desires that originate in us when we turn from him. Desires that originate in us when we turn from him. Before he talks about these desires though, in verses 21, 22, and 23, he talks about our minds getting darkened, our understanding getting darkened, and our hearts becoming hard to the truth about him. Our thinking gets warped our desires start to change. What we think about the universe in suppressing the truth gets dark. And because of that, our desires begin to change. And this is kind of what I talked about last week about the light in the room. When we refuse to admit the only true light, it's only logical that our minds and our hearts become dark. 
when we refuse to admit the only true light, our minds and our hearts must become darkened. Our thinking, Paul says, becomes futile. It becomes not what it was meant to be. It becomes foolish. Right becomes wrong. Up becomes down. Less and less we see reality as it really is. And this distortion of reality as it really is leads to distorted passions and desires that are also fundamentally wrong and distorted. See, what Paul is saying is we don't just think the wrong things when we turn from God. This self-imposed distortion of reality. We don't just think the wrong things. We begin to want the wrong things from wrong thinking. And, you know... We can all see this operative in our hearts. For instance, for myself, if I don't think the right way about God as my provider, as my sustainer, as my faithful provider, then I begin to believe that I am my own provider. If, If I don't think rightly about God, that he's my provider, then I begin to believe that I am my own provider. And then I don't just stop there. I begin to crave I begin to crave, not fellowship with God, not friendship with God, not resting in God. I begin to crave money. My turning from God as my faithful provider, which is a a, a wrong thinking, leads me to a wrong wanting. Money, which is a gift from God, thought of and used rightly, it begins to receive more esteem, more uh, respect and reverence and honor and pursuit than God. Do you see how that works? Dark thinking about what reality is inevitably leads to dark desires. But of course, in verse 24, Paul's not talking about money yet. He's talking about sexuality, which I can't help but wonder when I read Romans for years, why does Paul start here? Like, is he trying to pick on homosexuality as a sin? Is he elevating it above other sins? I don't think he is at all. If anything, it feels like there's a progression in in Romans of things getting worse and worse and worse. Homosexuality, sexuality comes first. Brutality, hatred, maliciousness, gossip, greed comes later. So I, I don't think that there's a picking on homosexuality going on here. Why does Paul start here? He doesn't explicitly say, so I want to be careful. But it's there, and I think it it should be considered. So this is my best understanding. And this is, um, take this with a grain of salt, so to speak. Because this isn't what Paul explains right away. But but I I think that Paul is in the context of created things going wrong, of creation. The whole the whole chapter, the whole context here is fundamental creation motif stuff. Fundamentals. What is at the root and the core of, of reality? That's what he's dealing with here. Primary things, foundational things. And Paul is showing us what, that what goes wrong in man goes wrong at the foundation at the very core of who he is as an image bearer. 
So, so that invites me, that leads me to go back to the core, to the foundation, to the primary things of scripture, which brings me back to Genesis 1. And in Genesis 1, when God makes us in his image, the very core, the foundation of our creation and our existence, he, the first thing he says about us is this, in verse 27 of Genesis 1, verse 26, 27, he says, let us make man in our image, God says, and in our likeness. And in verse 27, he explains more about what that means. So he created man in his own image. The very next words, in the image of God, he created him. He says it again, I'm making you in my own image. I'm making you in my own image. In the very next words, male and female, he created them. Male and female, he created them. The first thing God says about our image bearing to qualify, to define, to explain our image bearing is our sexuality. We are man and we are woman, male and female. And that is how God says we are his image bearers. It's not the only way we are, but that's what he says, the very first thing. And what did God want this image bearing reality of male and female, man and woman, to show about his image through being male and female. And we could say a lot of things, but if we stick with the text, then we can consider what God's intentions were in making us from the text, from the context. It says that man and women were to be fruitful and multiply, to rule the earth and subdue it, to fill the earth to create order out of chaos. Things that God did before he made man. The things that God showed of himself before he made man is to take chaotic things and make them orderly. To take empty things and fill them with life. That's what God does before he makes man. He takes chaotic things and he brings order to them. He takes empty things and he fills them with beautiful life. And then he makes man in his own image and says, take the world and make order of it and fill it with beautiful things. Genesis 1 tells us that men and women are to be fruitful and multiply. There's a lot more to say about being God's image bearers. I'm just saying this is what God says right here when he, when he talks about this in Genesis 1. And in Genesis 2, we see the first marriage. For this reason, God says, a man leaves his family and starts a new one and cleaves, sticks permanently to the woman. For this reason, because he's made male and female, he leaves his family to start a new one and sticks permanently to his wife, cleaves to her. It's not one night stand language. It's faithfulness. It's commitment. It's lifelong this coming together of the male and female in soul and in body is to image God. What is God in the Christian conception? Not a trick question. If you know it, you can say it. What is he? Fundamentally, if we think about him, well, he's holy, he's good. But, but what's unique about the Christian conception of God? He's three, he's three. Or we might put it slightly more broadly, he's relationship. God is relationship, right? 
He's not just one person. God exists in relationship through all eternity. So how's God going to image himself if he doesn't create relationship? And so the first thing he does when he makes man in his image is create relationship. And then what does God do? God creates. God fills with life. God makes order. We've gone over that. And that's what he tells them to do. So he creates this relationship that's supposed to fill the world with life and create order out of it. And later, as God's revelation of himself unfolds, we learn in Ephesians 2, though we see it throughout Israel's history too, as God calls Israel his wife, and he says he was a husband to her, but we see it more explicitly in Ephesians 2, that this sexual union, this man and this woman coming together and becoming one, it images God in in a new way. It is to be a picture of Christ and the church. It is to be a picture of God and his people. It is to be a picture of the creator and the creation uniting. Creator and creation coming together. So marriage images God by being a relationship that's, that's united, but it also images God by showing his love for his image bearers. Marriage is supposed to be a picture of Christ and his people, of the creation uniting with the creator. So sexuality is really, really big to God. He wants to do incredible things with it. Marriage is ultimately an image of God relationship represented by the man as the the God piece of the poem representing, uh, uniting with the woman as the image bearer piece of the poem it doesn't mean that men are worth more than women they're not they're both image bearers of God in, in their own right but in the poem of the gospel God's asked men in a marriage to play the part of Jesus the loving sacrificial leader of the relationship who lays down his life in sacrifice for his people. It's this picture of the creator coming for the creation. It's this picture of the creation being able to be embraced and be united with the creator. So in sexuality, man and woman, you have God and people coming together. You have creator and creation coming together. That's the picture in sexuality that God is conveying to us. Do you guys understand that? It's really crucial to see this as we think about what's happening here in Romans 1, I think. Because in Romans 1, we leave Genesis and come back to Romans 1, what you see is Paul detailing an undoing of all this. It's a tragedy. The creator and the creation are not coming together. The creation is rejecting its creator and the creator is responding to the creation with judgment. The marriage is gone wrong. The poem is getting torn up. In fact, the poem is getting inverted. It's like symmetrical inversion, the exact opposite thing. It's not just going 
It's not just going slightly over here. It's doing the exact opposite thing. It's like the anti-poem is happening. The, the, this, this, the poem that sexual union, the poem that sexual union is supposed to resent of, of creator and creation uniting in love is being twisted. Creation is turning from God in the story of Romans 1, worshiping the creation and God is responding in judgment. And so I think that it might be intentional in verses 24 and 27 that in God's first judgment of our rejection of him, we see the unraveling of this poem of sexuality. That instead of man and women in loving union, thus imaging God's love for mankind, we see them inverting the image. Women are now craving uh, oneness with women and men are craving oneness with men, thus imaging perversion of the poem of the created coming together with the creation. That's my best, so to speak, guess at why Paul starts with sexuality. But... I'm going to try to go back directly to the texts now. So having put that aside, let's, let's move into what he says here. Verse 26. Let's go to verse 26. By the way, can I just pause for a second and just ask you, if that was just confusing, can you just raise your hand? Like if you're just like, I don't get that. You should be brave. This isn't a big room. No one's going to make fun of you. I'm just going to feel better to be able to just try to, and I won't take a 10-minute sidetrack. But the idea is that, well, I'll just stop there and we'll move into the text because if you guys didn't raise your hand, I'm going to trust you. Verse 26, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. Verse 27, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. God gave them up to dishonorable passions, Paul says. Lots of passions are not dishonorable. Not all passion is dishonorable. A man's sexual passion for the wife that he truly loves is very honorable. A man's passion for another man's wife is very dishonorable and shameful. But note in verse 26, this is really important, that in this context, what makes homosexual passions dishonorable is unique. Paul says they are contrary to nature. For their second sentence in, in verse 26, for their women exchange the natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. That is what makes these passions in particular dishonorable, different than what makes the passion of a man for another man's wife dishonorable. That, that word nature is where we get our word for physico- physics. It's physikos in the Greek, the way things are at a fundamental level. It has to do with the created order, instinct. Men and women, by their original design, Paul is arguing, were created naturally to unite with one another, male to female. This is obviously reflected in our very biology. And it's reflected in the animal kingdom, the bodies of all male and female creatures fit together. Our forms, our very physical forms are by nature designed for union. 
And this union leads to life, the multiplication and survival and flourishing. Physically, I mean propagation of the species of the, of the race. And this is important to consider too. So not just as the fit makes sense and is natural and clear, but, but the multiplying. Because the multiplying was commanded, remember, in the immediate context of making us man and women, of making us male and female. So this multiplying effect of heterosexual union is another confirmation that this is natural, the intended purpose design of our bodies and our sexuality by God. So Paul is saying here that homosexuality is contrary to nature, contrary to our form and contrary to God's will of multiplication. But Paul says more. He says harder things. And this is where I, I, I kind of go back to a phrase I, I, I will come back to at different times in preaching hard things, which is this appeal to let God be God in our thoughts and hearts. Because Paul says these homosexual activities are not only in the natural, they're not just inaccurate. He says they're dishonorable and shameful. And that's very hard for many in our culture to hear right now. But that's what God's word says, that homosexual activity is shameful and it's dishonorable. So we want to be clear. We want to be clear. God has been clear and we need to be clear too. And this is hard for us because not only has our culture rejected God's rule and laws proudly, but because there are a lot of so-called professing Christians telling us that God is fine with homosexuality. There are various arguments for this. There's an argument that Paul didn't mean the kind of monogamous same-sex relationships we have today. But this doesn't work because there were monogamous homosexual relationships in Paul's day. It wasn't infrequent. It wasn't unheard of. There were plenty of monogamous, faithful sexual relationships. Emperor Nero married a man in a public ceremony. He was married to a man. Paul knew the culture was full of long-term homosexual relationships, whether they were married or not. But Romans 1 is clear that homosexual activity without any qualification is shameful according to God's word. And that even the cravings themselves, do you note that? It's not just the activity, but the cravings themselves, which are essential to any willful, consensual, consensual sexual activity are dishonorable. So homosexuality is wrong, Paul says. It is the consequence of our fallenness. Not from, it is not from God's purposes for our sexuality but from this darkened mind that grew new desires contrary to God's will. I think in the world, one of the biggest challenges is, and, in, and I think in our own hearts too, in, in, in seeing more and more of the world come to a, a different understanding than it had about same-sex relationships and homosexual activity, is that 
it can feel like there's an arbitrariness to this idea. Like there's a, almost a capriciousness of this preferential demand that sexual affection be heterosexual. It can feel like, well, I mean, wh- what is wrong if these two men who love each other want to be together in sexual union? Like what, what, what's wrong with that? Why does, like they love each other, they're kind to each other. People can see them being kind to each other. They're not trying to bother us. They're not trying to bother you. Like, why can't you just let them be? Why do you have to get in their business and demand that they do things your way? And that makes perfect sense to me. if there's no authority outside ourselves. If we don't owe anybody else but ourselves honor and thanksgiving and allegiance and loyalty, that makes perfect sense if we weren't made for certain things and not for others. And that's the problem that the idea of God presents because the idea of God insists on an authority outside ourselves on a purpose that's been decreed to us, on someone besides you saying, this is what should be and not something else. So at the core of this is, is, a, is, a, is a need for God obscuring or at least Christian God obscuring thinking because we need to have an authority that we can control that we can say what is. And isn't that what idolatry is? To go our own way and say this is the way it should be and not this way, is to say we have that authority. But into this is is Jesus Christ coming to this earth and saying, you are broken, you're darkened, you turned from God long ago and you've all inherited this darkness and your thinking is wrong and now because your thinking is wrong, your desires have grown wrong. But that can seem capricious and arbitrary to us. Like, why? why? But you know, the universe doesn't work any other way than order and intention. Like, life doesn't work without things being one way and not another. Try to put it this way. Let's say that, that, let's say that one day the, the earth somehow became a, 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 its own agent. It, it, it became volitional. It, became, it, it could do its, think its own thoughts, right? And it said to itself, and the sun also had its own thoughts. And the earth said to the sun, you know what? I've been revolving around you for thousands of years. Why do I have to revolve around you anymore? Like, why does it have to be this way? You and me this way. I've always got to just, you've always got to be in the center. Every year I spin around you. Every, every day I spin around you. Every year I go around you. Why does it have to be this way? That's kind of arbitrary. It's just arbitrary. Like I, I'm my own planet. What's wrong with me revolving around Jupiter? 
Like, why can't it be that way? Arrogant son. You know what? I don't want to revolve around you anymore. And the son says, we've talked about this. I hear you, but I'm the son. I'm the biggest, most glorious, brightest, life-giving thing in, the, in this solar system. You should revolve around me. It's the way it should be. And the earth says, no, I'm not going to f- orient myself around you anymore. And so the son says, okay, all right, fine. If that's what you want, I will give you what you want. I will give you what you want. I'm not going to try to talk you into this. And the sun begins to move out of the solar system. Let's put some laws of physics aside for a few moments because everything (laughs) would go wrong quickly. But let's say it just made its way over to the Andromeda galaxy. It just withdrew. And the sun, because it's in the earth, because it's the earth, it's it's not the biggest planet. The earth was inextricably drawn over to Jupiter, the second biggest body in our solar system. And it started to revolve around Jupiter. It started to revolve around Jupiter. What's going to happen? Let's do it all in slow motion. Let's pretend it, let's relax the laws really quick. Slowly, right? Let's think about it. What happens slowly? Trees aren't bearing their leaves anymore because there's no light. Oceans aren't evaporating into clouds anymore. So there's no rain. Winds aren't blowing anymore. They're starting to freeze because it's so cold. The trees are dying. The water's turning to hardcore ice. And now animals are dying. People are dying. It's dark. It's lifeless. Nothing works anymore. It just becomes dead. So it wasn't arbitrary. It wasn't just the sun being arrogant. It was a necessary dynamic between sun and earth in order for earth to have life. You can't leave the sun and last and have order and have purpose and have life. It doesn't work. Well, I think that's what's going on here to some degree when we think, well, why can't we just have it this way? Why can't we just turn away from God and think our own thoughts and grow our new desires and why can't it work? The universe doesn't work that way. (coughs) Nothing works that way in the universe. Things work because they're connected to other things in very particular ways. Because their dynamic and their relationship with other things is very specific and very particular and that's how life exists. The universe is fine-tuned for life. And it wouldn't take going to Jupiter to wreck everything. It would just, it would take, you know, a few feet here or there to wreck temperatures and to wreck oceans. I mean, it's very, very finely tuned. God's not arbitrary. He's not capricious. He designed us. He's the author of life and he knows how things should go. 
And he knows that we need him. And he knows that without him, we will lose order and we will lose purpose. This has been the clear proclamation of scripture on our sexuality, on it, well, much more than that, but on our sexuality, at least from the beginning, from Genesis to Revelation, God has said this is the way sexuality should be and not this way. Whether it's the obvious creation of man and woman to be union, uh, to, to have sexual union and to image God that way or, or it's negatively speaking the judgment on Sodom for grievous homosexual perversion or the Mosaic laws, repeated decrees that homosexual activity is an abomination to the Lord deserving capital punishment or Paul here explaining that even homosexual passions are dishonorable and rooted in our darkened minds and darkened hearts or his words to the Corinthians that homosexual behavior is among the sins which keep men from the kingdom of God. Some will argue that it isn't fair. This deals with a lot of suffering and pain that we need to be really compassionate about. It isn't fair to label something unnatural if we're born that way, if we grow up feeling homosexual urges, especially ones we don't want because our family's hyper-conservative or conservative at all. And we're going to have trouble with that. We're going to feel guilt and shame. So it, it, isn't, it isn't fair. But again, the word's testimony is that our entire race was corrupted at every part of us at the fall. So please don't argue, I just would encourage you, and most of you probably don't, but some of you might, just the argument that, that I was born this way, and then you know, certain Christians will come along and say, no, you weren't, you made a choice. You weren't born that way. Or I grew up feeling this way since I was young, and Christians say, no, you, you know, through the perversion, you chose this. Don't get into that argument. Because we were born broken at birth. <laughs> Sin, the Bible says, is at work in us from conception and from the womb. If we were to find, if we were to find biologically a so-called gay gene that predisposed some to same-sex attraction, that would be completely confirming with what we know about how the New Testament says sin infected the entire race of humanity and how it infects us from conception to birth. And it runs from fathers to sons and from parents to children. Another issue that, that comes up is that people will say that Jesus never said anything about homosexuality specifically, which I think is true, that he never explicitly mentions homosexuality. But, but listen, firstly, Jesus condemned sexual morality, immorality broadly. Jesus used a word called porneia when he condemned sexual immorality. It wasn't specific. It wasn't talking about one kind of activity he specifically chose a broad term, porneia, which is a general description of serious sexual sin and that always included homosexuality since that was clearly lab labeled immoral by God's law again and again in scripture. Scriptures that Jesus accepted as, full, as fully true as a Jew in which he said cannot be broken. Lastly, just think, this, think about this. Jesus never said anything specific about a lot of sins. He never said anything specific about child molestation or idolatry or incest or opiate addiction. Are we to discern from this that he was fine with these things? No. Jesus spoke to the pervasive sin among the Jewish people in the small region he ministered to. 
Jesus spoke to the pervasive sins among the Jewish people in the small region he ministered to, among whom homosexuality and idolatry were not pervasive at the time. But when Paul left the Jewish people to preach among the Gentiles, a people among whom the sins of homosexuality and idolatry and sorcery were prevalent, what do we see Paul doing? He's speaking about these things. So it's just a logical necessity of Jesus' good brain and Paul's good brains that they spoke to the issues of the day among the people they were speaking to. So, out of reverence for God in order to represent him, brothers and sisters, may we be clear. We, we, we live in a world with sexual darkness and confusion like I've never seen in my lifetime. And the prevailing culture cries out to all of us, sexual identity is up to you. It depends on how you feel. It is about what you want. This is exactly the culture that Paul is writing to among the Christians around them in Rome and Corinth, among the Gentiles who were unbelieving. They had rejected their creator. They were experiencing his judgment of giving them up to their darkened minds and the wants that come from that. But even in the midst of that, the whole point of Paul writing is because God is not done with them. He is longing for their rescue. Even from his own justice, he's longing for their healing and their repair. And so he gave Paul this assignment. Tell them, tell them their biggest problem is not their sexual sin. They have cravings that they can't control. They have desires that are wrong and broken, but that's not their biggest problem. Their biggest problem is their rejection of me. And I want them back. Tell them I'm ready to forgive their rejection of me. I'm ready to give them new hearts if they will turn to me. I'm ready to give them hope that they might be able to follow me and stand against their sin and find joy again in me. This is what the gospel of Jesus Christ offers. Not, not mainly perfect morality, we won't get perfect morality in this life. There are many miracle stories of people whose sin battles have been massively changed. The dynamics of their cravings have been massively changed. There are miracles where people have been healed from greed and from brutality and violence. And yes, from all kinds of sexual sins. But in the main, mostly, we're left with a heart that has to fight for the rest of our lives against these things that we've grown up with, but that can, by God's grace, fight, that can take a stand. And this is what Jesus says, I will come to you and I will help you and I will be faithful to you. And one day, I will fix all of this. In the blinking of an eye, I will restore you fully. This has practical ramifications for us in terms of how we think about this and we think about our world around us when we're looking at sexual immorality. Kevin Rogers gave a sermon on this in 2016. It was fantastic at Covenant Life. And he said that he has a tact that he, when, he, when he engages with someone who's struggling with same-sex issues and they want to talk about it with him, 
They want to get into it about what the Bible says about these things. They want to argue their case and argue against the Bible's case against homosexuality. He, he, he tries to say, can we, can we spend some time talking about Jesus first? Can we talk about Jesus and try to, try to see what we can agree with about him? Because if, if we can't agree about him, everything else is not going to work too. The degree we can start to agree about him and see him together, eventually maybe we can make progress on these other things. I think it's a beautiful idea. If we went to that earth in our scenario that had deadened itself and walked around and said, hey, planet earth revolving around Jupiter, let's, why are your trees all burned up and dead? And why are your oceans all frozen, rock solid? Like, what's your deal? Get those oceans melted. Get the trees growing again. That's not the issue primarily. They need to find a way to reconcile with the sun. And then some of that will happen. Some of that will be restored. Eventually all of it will. Because that's the central problem. So may we be clear. May we be compassionate. May we be courageous. Those will come um, in the next couple of weeks after Robin. But hopefully you've been able to find some ground towards clarity. And again, if you haven't today, please come and talk to me. I'd love to make sure that I can do the best I can to help you with this and learn from you too. Let me pray for us. Lord, uh, we just pray for your grace. We pray for your word to be honored. We pray for help, Lord. We pray that you would give us grace to let you be you as we process these things. We pray for your grace to see rightly, to think rightly, that our own desires about this would be right, but also, Lord, that we would be able to stand as real friends, as the right kind of allies, so to speak, to people who are battling with this, that we would be able to say, well, this is the truth. And I love you, but I... I need to bring you the truth in order to love you. And we might know how to do that. And Lord, I pray for those of us in this room who may be struggling with uh, sexual brokenness like this or any kind of sexual brokenness in, in a really, really soul-crushing way. God, you know we are all struggling sexually. We are all broken and twisted and not what we were supposed to be in our sexuality. We all want things that we shouldn't, the way that we shouldn't whether it's homosexual activity that we crave or whether it's pornography or whether it's someone else's wife or whether it's someone else's daughter or husband or son. Lord, we, we are all given to dishonorable passions. And so, Lord, may you give us mercy and healing and you may help us to have that, Lord, uh, remind us to be compassionate and kind with anyone whose particular passions are different than ours in their way that they're, they're, sh- they're dishonorable too, Lord, because we are. We, we struggle with these things as well, Lord. In Jesus' name, Lord, we pray, amen.